several years ago uh, while working with the then L.A. Rams, the following story was told of a former NFL player who was currently living in Detroit, Michigan. And after his short, highlightless career, he went to work at General Motors in the public relations department only to be let go, laid off during a recession. And uh, desperate and ill-prepared in the job market, he had heard through a friend at the Detroit Zoo that a very popular gorilla had got sick and died. And up to this point, the public had yet to hear of this tragedy. The management of the zoo had an idea for him to consider. They offered him a job as the gorilla's temporary replacement. All he had to do was dress up in a gorilla suit, entertain the visitors, and the job was his until the money could be quietly raised for a permanent gorilla replacement. Well, as a former linebacker who had obviously taken one too many hits to the head, he took the job and soon found himself enjoying his new gig. Scratching, grunting, eating with his hands, beating his chest all came naturally to him anyway. And the crowd that loved him. You know, then there came that fateful day when the zookeeper inadvertently opened the back of the door to where the gorilla pen was and a lion was let in. And as the lion came in and he was looking at this lion, he realized he was in trouble. And he began to scream for help. Get me out of here. Help. Somebody get me out of here. Help. Get me out of here. And he was losing it, man. And he got him cornered in the, and the lion kept coming toward him in a quarter against, against the wall that was there. And he was screaming and yelling at the top of his voice, but it was muffled because of the gorilla suit. And he was just about ready to die of a heart attack when he heard the lion say, hey, be quiet, man. If they hear you, we're both going to lose our job. <laughs> Things aren't always as they appear. You know, and the point is true. You know, if you ask the average person in the street or someone that you would be having any kind of conversation with, ask them the one question, what is it that one needs to do to please God? And the answer inevitably comes back to you got to do good works. Do good works. Do good things. And those good works and those good things, it's such a huge and broad umbrella. Because what is a good work and good thing to one person is just a way of life to another. What is, you know, a step above is just a step below. And those good works become confusing. And so today, in our continuing study through the Gospel of Luke, we come to a passage that will give a more definitive answer to that question. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 38 we'll discover three things true of a life that pleases God. A life that pleases God from Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 21. In Luke 2, 21, we read these words, And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. In this passage, we are identifying three things that please God. The first is seen in the response of the parents, which we've got an outline form in front of you if you've got that from your bulletin. Seen in the response of the parents of Joseph and Mary, and we'll look at that in detail. The second is that we see a life that pleases God as seen in the revelation of Simeon in the passage that we see. And the third thing is that we we see it, and it's in the rejoicing of Anna. So the first thing that we learn of the life that's pleasing to God is seen in the response of the parents, Joseph and Mary, to the commandments that God had given, not only recently, but prior to that in his law. In verses 21 through 24, we'll look in detail when we read the words, And when eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The first thing that we see identifies the decision that was made to name the baby Jesus. If you recall in our study, both Mary and Joseph had been told separately by an angel to name the child Jesus. We see it in Matthew one twenty one, where Joseph is told what the child's name shall be. In Luke one thirty we we're told that Gabriel tells Mary specifically what to name her child. And their decision to do so was an act of obedience to God's command. But before we dig deeper into the area of obedience on the part of Joseph and Mary, for it's the obedient life that's pleasing to God, I want to take a moment and share with you the meaning of the name Jesus. It's sad, I bet you, if we went around the room and asked, what what does the name Jesus mean? That many of us wouldn't know. And it's important that we recognize and understand historically in the context why it was so significant that his name would be called Jesus. Jesus is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word Joshua, the name of the great man who succeeded Moses and led Israel into the promised land, which is no coincidence because originally Joshua's name wasn't Joshua, but it was Hoshea, which means salvation. But because of his faith, if you recall, when the 12 uh, 12 spies were sent out to spy the land to overcome, 10 of them came back and said, you know what, The, the opposition was too great. And it was only Joshua, Hoshea at the time, and Caleb who went back and came in with a report that said, you know what, yeah, they're big, but our God is bigger. You know, and what an important thing that is for all of us to learn. So oftentimes we minimize or we we do what I call put God in a box. 
You know, we, 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 we shrink them down to our size. And we don't recognize how truly great and awesome our God is. The God of the universe. All one needs to do is just look around at the expanse of the universe and recognize how, how awesome is our God. If you're struggling with any area of life, I guarantee you it's only because you've got your eyes on your circumstances and not on how awesome our God is. You know, and, I, and I'm embarrassed as I share that, you know, this property and the things that have taken place and have gone on, and it just is mind-boggling to me, but then it's almost a confession to say that, you know what, I, I, it, it, it indicts me. It indicts me that I fall into the trap that I put our God into a smaller box than the, the universe that he's created. And so Hoshea, when he came back with Caleb, said, you know what, yeah, there's a bunch of big people there, but you know what, they were all created by our God. So I'm thinking, think it through. God's bigger than them. Let's go get it. And it was at that time that Hoshea was given the name by Moses, Joshua. Moses gave, according to Numbers 13, 16, Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. And as we all know, as we say, and the rest is history, he became Israel's greatest general. But it was a defining moment in the life of Hoshea as each one of us have those defining moments as to what our destiny will be from that moment forward. For those who continue to think as the ten did that God was too small, we don't read anything else about them, do we? But the pages of Scripture chronicle the life of Joshua because he was a man who recognized how awesome was his God. I hope that's true of you and me. I hope that as we come to those defining moments that we're able to tell the people around us, it seems like it's a truly great circumstance, but you don't know much about our God because he's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ever ask or think. Joshua, the greatest general that Israel ever knew. Joshua, or Jesus, not only means Jehovah's salvation, but it also suggests deliverance. Isn't that wonderful that it was Joshua, Jesus, Jehovah's salvation? It was Joshua who led the people into the promised land. And it is Jesus Christ who leads his people into the promised land of God. See, everything God does, he does for a reason. Everything God does, he does for a purpose. And when Hoshea was named Joshua... It was a foreshadow of the naming of Jesus, for he is our salvation. It's a wonderful thing to know because the name Jesus shouts to the world the heroics of the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection. The angel told them both at separate times that you shall call him Jesus. And I got to believe that Mary and Joseph often discussed this, both before their son's birth and during the week since, But when the time for circumcision came and Joseph uttered the divinely given name, the sense of that moment must have overwhelmed them. Think about this. This child shall be called Jehovah is salvation. This child, our baby, is God's salvation. I mean, I I can't even imagine what it must have been like to have been there. When they looked at their son and said, this child is God's salvation. And you shall call him Jesus, for he shall deliver or save his people from their sins. 
Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. He is my deliverance. See, if that's not part of your mindset, perhaps you've not come to know him. John Newton said this about Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name. Master, Savior. See, the name of Jesus is a beautiful sound in the ear of God's people. The name of Jesus is like fingernails against a chalkboard in a world that is at enmity with God. Why does the name Jesus render such harsh reactions? Because there is no other name given to men under heaven by which men can be saved. All roads don't lead to heaven. All belief systems are not right, no matter how sincere. God has one plan, one peace plan, as we've already learned. One, and that's it. And his salvation is Jesus. The decision to name him Jesus as well as the decision to have him circumcised reflect the obedience of the life that pleases God. In Luke chapter 2, 21 through 40, if you'll note as you go through it on your own, just circle or underline how many times the word law is used. There's five different references to the law of God. Though he came to deliver his people from the bondage of the law, Jesus was made, as we're told, was under the law and obeyed it. If you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, you read the uh, parallel account that we see taking place here. What was so important about Mary and Joseph and the decisions that they made in Galatians chapter 4. In verse 1 we read, Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But... When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to abolish the law or destroy it he came to fulfill it joseph and mary obeyed the 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 god's laws the laws of god they did as god instructed the law revealed both god's holiness and man's sinfulness in fact if you're still in galatians 4 look at verse 23 24 of the previous chapter in fact 22 says but the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in jesus christ might be given to those who believe Notice what it says, that the purpose of God's laws was not only to reveal the holiness of God, but also the sinfulness of all men. The purpose of God's law is to help you and I see what God says about us is true, that none of us are righteous, no, not one. We've all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all sinned. And we need to recognize that we're guilty before God, and the the purpose of God's laws is to shut us up. 
And, and what I mean by that is this. If you ever ask somebody who says, well, you know, the thing I need to do is do good works and that'll be pleasing to God. And you say to them, you know what, but there's nothing good that you can do. There's nothing good in any one of us. And they'll start to say, well, wait a minute. And they'll get offended and defensive of that. And they'll say, well, wait, you know, I'm a good person. And they'll, be, they'll proceed to give you a list of all the things that they don't do that they know other people do. You know, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't cheat on my spouse. I don't do this or that. I don't get drunk. I'm blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't. But the problem is, but there are still things you do that the law reveals that you're guilty of. It would be like a person saying who's convicted of speeding, uh, you know, that, that, that they're not convicted of some other offense. It's like, no, you're guilty of this. No matter how many other things you're not guilty of. And it's always funny because you always hear kids say stuff like that. You ever notice that? If you've ever been talking with your children, they're going through that time in their life where they're kind of a little bit rebellious and, and you're trying to fine-tune an area of their life that, you know, is not pleasing to God, not pleasing to you. And so you begin to share with them why that thing that they're doing, that behavior is so wrong before God. And, and, and inevitably, they come back with this. Well, at least I'm not doing... And then they go down the list. You know, it's like, well, well, well let me reward you for that. So what, what is that? You know, I, I, you know, I'm not lying, cheating, murdering, stealing, you know, doing crack cocaine. I'm not doing all these things. It's like, but I know, and I know people who are, and I'm not doing any of that. So what? Here's what you're doing. Let's get focused back on that. If you've ever dealt with people that take you on a tour of the universe, it's like now that we've done all that, and it's a beautiful universe, by the way, God has created, let's get back to the issue at hand. Did you or did you not do this? And it's like, oh, yeah. See, and what does it do? It shuts them up. So what God's law does for you and I as adults who think we're much more sophisticated as we present the argument before God. <laughs> God says, but you're guilty of this. And it just go, shut up. You know, like Job, you know, Job was rambling on and on and God started asking him a bunch of questions. You know, where were you when I created the universe? You know, where were you? When I set the seasons in order. Where were you when I did this, this, that, and the other thing? And at the end of all that, Job went like this. That's it. I'm done. I'm going to put, you know, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. Isn't that a great way to just in our relationship with God? You're right. I'm wrong. If I have to hold my hand over my mouth so that I don't say stupid things to you again, that's what I'll do. We've got duct tape. <laughs> you know, all these self-help tapes that are out there. Get this self-help tape, that self-help tape. Get a roll of that. And just every now and then. Sometimes we just need to stick it on our, you know, just stick it over our mouth. Okay, God, that's it. See, he says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, for you're all the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. God's laws are a teacher or a tutor to lead us to an understanding that we are guilty as charged and must seek God's forgiveness. God's laws tell you and I we need a Savior from sin and the consequence and the judgment of God. God's laws say, you know what, you're guilty. And the next response should be, what must I do to be saved from the judgment of God? And God says, you must believe upon him whom I have sent, my only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the message. Joseph and Mary, back to Luke chapter 2, obeyed God's laws 
they did and as God was instructed them to do. And the point of the passage, and I hope that no one misses this, is very simple, and that's this. You know, Joseph and Mary, Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, Joseph, her husband. You would think that in a world of pecking order as we exist and deal in, that they would have some special privileges before God. And the answer is very simple, and it's answered to us by the text of Scripture where Jesus was speaking to a large group of people one day, and Mary and, and, and Jesus' brothers and sisters were way in the back of the crowd. And they came up to him and said, But Lord, your mother and your brothers and sisters, they're here and they're way in the back. And he said, Who are my bro- mother and brothers and sisters but all who do the will of God? See, what they recognized and understood is that they were not above the laws of God. No pastor, no elder, no priest, no bishop, no pope, no king, no president is above the law of God. And the life that pleases God is a life that is obedient to the word of God. The question that we ask ourselves at this time for a self-examination and that life application point is, Am I truly obedient to the laws of God? Am I truly obedient to the word of God? Jesus was circumcised according to Genesis 17. It was required of every Jewish male who wanted to practice the faith. And circumcision proclaimed an important spiritual truth in Romans chapter 2. Paul wrote to the Romans that, you know what? God is no longer dealing with externals, but he deals with the internal. He deals with the heart. Circumcision became an external rite that they just went through. It's like people who go to church and it's an external rite. They go through the ordinance of God. You know, they are baptized maybe or they are confirmed or they have their first communion or they do all of these things and they're external rites of a denomination or a church and it's an external thing. But God says, you know what? But I want to write my laws upon your heart. I want to change your heart. I want to create in you a new heart. And if we're born again from by God, we're born again from a Above and old things pass away and all things become new. It's not about works. It's by grace we're saved through faith. It has nothing to do with our efforts. So the person in the street that says, I need to do these things to please God, they totally, they're, they're totally lost and have no comprehension of the plan of God. But praise God that we who do are in a position where we can share that and proclaim that to them. See, his circumcision was his first suffering for us. It symbolizes the work that the Savior did on the cross in dealing with our sin nature, according to Philippians 3, 1 through 3, and Galatians 6, 15. But the circumcision and naming of Jesus was only the beginning of Joseph and Mary's obedience. Notice the second thing is in verse 22, it says, And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of God, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. When the child was 40 days old, Mary and Joseph had come to the temple for the purification rites as described in the law of God in Leviticus 12. They also, according to the law of God, had to redeem the boy since he was Mary's firstborn. They had to pay five shekels to redeem the redeemer. Think about that. Who would one day redeem us with his precious blood. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 through 19 says that we have been bought, we have been purchased, redeemed by the precious blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their humble sacrifice, if you'll notice uh, the fact that it says that if you're poor, 
than you would bring a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Their humble sacrifice reminds us of the poverty that was true of the household that God chose to deliver his son. They were too poor to bring a lamb, but it wasn't necessary because God provided the lamb. John the Baptist would later say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God provided his own lamb. Here again we see that Christianity began and always begins with a spirit of need, a spirit of destitution and brokenness. If you recall in Luke chapter 1, Mary, as she sung her exaltation to God, she said that, you know, for God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The angel's revelation to the, to the shepherds rather than to the high and mighty of Israel sang this out as well. And the wretched circumstances of Christ's birth echoed the same refrain. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. <coughs> God did not and does not come to the self-sufficient. It's a broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. You cannot come to the cross proud and haughty. You come to the cross because you're broken and recognize your need for forgiveness. You come to the cross because you realize that what God says about you is true, that you're guilty. Guilty is charged, and you throw yourself upon the mercy of the courtroom of God. Broken and contrite heart, oh God. Our only adequacy is in Christ. If we're to boast of anything, it's to boast in Him. Our Lord's relationship to the law is an important part of his saving ministry, as we've seen. And so I'm going to challenge you to consider a life that pleases God is a life obedient to God's commands. If you look at that word at Luke, (coughs) excuse me, if you look at that word where it says they came to present him, I couldn't help but picture the same thing that we had this morning as a couple came to present themselves and their children to God. Think about what it means to present yourself. Today, Christians, we present ourselves to the Lord. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you would know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The picture that was there was Jesus was, came and was presented to God. And we are to present ourselves. And as you know about the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, he came to do the will of the Father. He said, not my will, but yours be done. You and I today, those who have come to faith in Christ, are to present ourselves on a regular basis before the throne room of God, as Isaiah did and said, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, use me. Here I am, Lord, may you make known to me anything that's unpure and clean or anything that I've got to do to confess my sin before you so that you can use me to further your kingdom. I come to you and present myself to you. I did a wedding last night and I thought about that as the the bride and her father came down the walkway and the, the father of the bride presents to the groom his daughter for marriage presents and then he steps away because the plan of God is what that a man would leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh and there was an action that took place that not many people recognized or understood but it was an act of presenting one to another and the dynamics of that relationship were forever changed 
The father, the mother, the family steps back and says, now it's your family and you continue to walk with the Lord. See, when you and I present ourselves to God, our lives should never be the same. There's no looking back. There's nowhere else to go. Jesus said that a man who puts his hand to the plow and starts to look back, you know, he's going to have nothing but trouble because you can't furrow a field if you're looking behind you and you're not looking straight ahead. The Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus. The Bible says, forget what lies behind and press on to what lies ahead. You are here today and God says, present yourself to him and forget about everything that lies behind and make a commitment today to walk forward with him in obedience. The life that's obedient to God is a life that is pleasing to him. Before I move to the next point, the great command of God that you and I is this, of you and I is this, that we would believe on him whom God has sent. And this is the work of God, that you would believe on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom he has sent. Have you believed on him? Have you trusted in him? Are you obedient to him? Do you demonstrate such belief by living daily obediently to the word of God? Jesus said this, if you truly love me, you obey my commandments. Do you really obey God every day? And I was like, if not, you know, you got to ask yourself the question, why not? I mean, how, how long do you and I have to live to see this truth revealed to us over and over again? If you do what is right before God, he will bless you. If you do what is wrong before God, there will be consequences. Choose life or choose death. Choose right or choose wrong. Choose blessing or choose curse. Now, you know what? I'm not the sharpest tack in the box all the time. But I'm thinking to myself here, it seems like an easy choice. Then make it. Choose to be obedient, and that life will be pleasing to God. Second thing is seen in the revelation of Simeon, as we see here in verses 25 through 35. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was a righteous man, devout, and looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. The life that pleases God is not only obedient, but also a life lived by faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. How did Simeon become a man of faith? Well, look at his background. We're told that he was a righteous, devout man looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit of the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out from the custom of the law, man, everything changed. He was looking patiently, hopefully waiting for the consolation of Israel. This was the hope of all God's people, the coming Messiah. It turned back to Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 66 when you have a chance and read that. Because Simeon longed for the comfort that God's Savior would bring after a time of affliction. As I was reading and studying, I thought, man, you know what? Do you have such a longing in your life? That longing of looking, searching, seeking. Are you looking for God's comfort from the torment of sin, the bondage of not being able to stop doing those things that are destroying your life? Are you looking for peace with God and others and yourself? 
Simeon was, and he had faith, and he had the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things yet not seen, that God's word and his promises would come true exactly as he said. He was looking for the comfort that God promised to bring the people of Israel. You and I need to look for the comfort that God promised to bring us from the destruction of sin and the bondage that goes with it. One of the traditional Jewish prayers of the day is, May I see the consolation of Israel. That was their prayer daily. May I see the consolation of Israel. May I see the comfort that God had promised. May I live long enough to see the promises of God that were made. Simeon believed God when he told him that he would not die until he had seen God's Savior. And as always, God delivered his promise. Notice this when you read through this as he makes this statement. The blessing demonstrated. His blessing to God demonstrated his faith in the word of God. He took Jesus, the child, into his arms and blessed God. And said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in the peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which has prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. I'm certain as Simeon hugged him, that the baby Jesus, he hugged him tight and with a tear or two in his eyes, and he proclaimed the words, Now. And I couldn't help but thinking, I was like, now, what was so special or, or significant about that? Think about something here. One can only imagine how many times Simeon asked in the past, God, is this the one? Is this the couple? They look like good candidates. Is this the one? Is, is, is this the one? Is this the child? And for years, and we're not told how long, he continued to seek and wait for the consolation of Israel. Is this the one? And I could just imagine the conversation where like, Lord, is this the one? He said, no. Now? No, not now. Now? No, not now. Have you ever been with your children when, when you were going to do something and they gave you that one? You know what I mean? I, I was out, out running once and I was down on a track and I was running across the track. And I saw a dad and his son and they were building a rocket that they were going to launch. And, and as I was running around the track, I kept hearing this conversation take place. And, you know, the dad's getting everything set up and the kid's just sitting right next to the button. You know, and dad's trying to figure it out and it's not ready and he's figuring it out and the kids, he must have asked him 50 times, now dad, now dad, no, not now, no, not now. He's just, and especially not right now. And, and, and you know, he's doing this thing and, and then finally after all this interchange, he finally went like this, okay, and he gets back over next to him and, and his son looks at him and goes, now? He goes, now. Boom. And, I, and that's what I envisioned in this conversation that took place because he goes, now, now, now. Isn't that awesome? Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace. Now. I don't know. You know what? I mean, that, that, doesn't, that never, never gets old to me. You know, now. See, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. I want you to notice something. Don't miss this. God had promised Simeon that he would see the salvation of God. What did he see? Did he see a, a to-do list? Here's the 10 things you need to do to be right with God. Did he see a to-do list? He didn't see a to-do list. Did he see some external right that churches often do? Didn't see that either. What did he see? He said, my eyes have seen your salvation. You know who he saw? He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus. My eyes have seen your salvation. He saw a person. Not a list of things to do. 
Not a church building, not a denomination, not a Bible study. He saw a person. God's salvation is found in a person. And the person is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he saw. You either have him or you don't have him. You either trust in him or you don't trust in him. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, do I have him today as my Lord and Savior? 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says in these things, these things, you know, th- th- he says, and this is the witness. This is a testimony of God, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And he who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son of God does not have life. He said, these things I have written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you have eternal life? You do if you have trusted in Jesus Christ and have faith in the promise of God. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ and him alone, his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection, then the Bible says that you are a child of God to those who believe in his name. There should not be a person hearing my words that has any doubt as to their relationship with God because you have either trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins or you have not. You have heard this over and over again, and you continue saying that, you know what, I'm thinking about it, I'm waiting, I I, I haven't made a decision yet, but do not wait, for today is the day of the Spirit. Do not presume upon God, for it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. How foolish we are to presume that we have one more moment to breathe. Do not hesitate, today is the day of the Lord. If you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, then do so today because you are not guaranteed another moment on this side of heaven or this side of hell. Trust in him. Simeon was a man who had faith in the promises of God. As he held the baby Jesus, he began to praise God in song and his song laid down for Mary and Joseph and for us the purpose of the Christ child. Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you now can dismiss your servant in peace. With the baby in his arms, secure in God's presence, Simeon experienced a profound peace of his soul because, after all, he was holding the Prince of Peace. See, God revealed to him. Now, some of you are thinking, well, you know what? God revealed to Simeon the identity of Jesus Christ. Well, if God would reveal that to me, then maybe I would believe that too. Listen to me. God reveals to you and me the identity of Jesus Christ the same that he revealed the identity of Jesus Christ to Simeon. For when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal it to you. But what? But my father who is in heaven. The only way you and I can even recognize that Jesus is our savior is because God reveals him to us so that we can put our trust and our faith and our hope in him. God still does the same today. He revealed the identity of Jesus to Simeon. Then he reveals the identity of Jesus Christ to you and I today. It's a question of what we choose to do with the information that God gives. And Simeon, he embraced him. Simeon, he embraced him. He took him and he embraced him. Have you embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none can boast. He said, let thy bondservant depart. The word depart is a very rich word in Scripture. 
And it means, and it gives us a real good, clear understanding of what it means to die. The word depart was a nautical term that meant to take a ship that would depart one port to head to another port. It also meant to take down a tent of those who were traveling in caravans. And they would depart. They would take down the tent. But they would go to the new place that they were going and they would put it back up again. See, when when God's people die, we pass from this life to the next. We depart from this life to the next life as the ship that goes from one port to the next. As a caravan that takes down a tent here and God builds a tent there. It's a beautiful picture of a journey and of a travel. And there's no fear there. And that's why Simeon said this, I can now die in peace because I have seen God's Savior, my Savior, the Christ child. Man, it's awesome. It's awesome. But he had faith. He had faith in the Word of God. The life that pleases God has faith in God and in His promises and in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an open invitation, as you'll notice. Can you imagine a Jewish man standing in the temple proclaiming, and also he is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel? I praise God for that. I'm not Jewish. But whosoever shall come may come. A Jewish man standing in the temple proclaiming that God's salvation is open to the Gentiles as well as the glory of Israel. God's plan of salvation is open to all. A life that pleases God is a life lived obediently to God's word, is a life that's lived by faith. As Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you believe God and do you believe his word? That life lived by faith is pleasing to God. And without it, it's impossible. And the last thing is this. In verses 36 through 38, we're introduced, and, and, and the life that is pleasing to God is seen in the rejoicing of Anna. And there was a prophetess, Anna. She is advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, when she heard all that would have taken place, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. The word Anna, the name Anna means grace. And she demonstrated God's grace in her life. I want you to stop and think about this. For 84 years, she steadfastly devoted herself to God's service. She was probably around 13, 14 years of age when she got married. She lived with her husband for seven, and then he died. She was 21 years old when she entered into the temple and began serving God, and she did so steadfastly for 84 years, making her about 106 years old. Her life demonstrates one is never too old to serve our God. Her life and her lips summed up the life that pleases God, and she was grateful for all that God had done. So many people in life become bitter towards God. I can imagine a woman, 14 years of age, married for seven years. She's only 21 years old, and her husband dies. And she's at a crossroads where she can decide whether she'll be bitter and angry at God because look what God did, or she can praise God that she had the experience for seven years to live with that man. And now she had a choice of where she would go in the rest of her life. And she chose, you know what? I want to serve God. Now that I'm unencumbered, I want to serve God day and night. And for 84 years, she never left the temple. She served God. 
And you know what this woman had? She had an attitude of gratitude. And I love being around people like that. Compare and despair. Linda and I had a Bible study the other night, and we were going through this, and we came up with this phrase, you know, compare and despair. You start comparing yourself to what's going on around you, and you'll despair. Because there's always somebody who's got something more than you. Always somebody who's got something better. And by the way, that's just sin because it's a sin of coveting. You look at what somebody else has and you want it and therefore you're not satisfied and therefore you don't praise God anymore because look at God's withholding from you and giving to somebody else. That's just terrible. That's a sin. Confess that before God. It's wrong. Compare and despair or have an attitude of gratitude. I'm going to challenge you today. If you're a kind of person that always likes to compare and despair, then ask God to forgive you right here and now and replace the compare and despair with an attitude of gratitude. Here's a lady for 84 years. Serve God night and day. She finished strong. She's a great example of the Apostle Paul who said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Man, you know what? There's a, there's, there's a, a woman example, a female example of a woman who finished strong. I'll tell you what. I look around and I see people that are a little bit older than me chronologically. And I see the smile on your face. I, you know what? I, I, I'm gonna, I don't like to do this, but I'm going to do this. I'll tell you what. Betty, I see Betty... I see her pull up. I see her just get down in the wheelchair. I see her zipping around doing some donuts and stuff. And, and I see a big smile on her face. And, and I see the kids that watch her and they're looking at her and, and, and what's going on. And, and I look at her life and I say, praise God for you. Because you are a godly example that the rest of us should ask God for forgiveness. Because you have not allowed the devil to rob you of the joy of your Savior. And I would challenge the rest of us to do the same. To have an attitude of gratitude. Anna had an attitude of gratitude. She served God for 84 years, night and day. And you know what? And she couldn't help but praise God. And you know what else she couldn't help but do? She couldn't help but go around to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Do you have friends? Do you have family? Do you have co-workers? Do you have neighbors who are looking for answers in life? They're seeking answers. They have no hope. And guess what? You have the answer. I have the answer. Christ living within us is the answer, the hope of glory. We know God's peace plan for man. He has entrusted it to us. We need to proclaim it to the world. Our purpose as a church, our purpose as a people is to reach the world with the word of God living alive in us. Amen. Amen. The life that pleases God is lived obediently, faithfully, and gratefully. I can imagine the thoughts as we close that must have gone through Mary and Joseph's mind. Their baby, Jehovah is salvation, was and is a mighty deliverer. He delivers us through the heroics of the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection. You know, I think about passages like this, and you know what? This should give us Christmas joy all year round. He comes to the needy, those who realize that he is their only hope. Truly, he has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Today, it is those who sense a spiritual need and a spiritual hunger who live in wonder of what God has done by sending his son. Jesus Christ is the whole of salvation, not part of it. This realization brings peace. He said, I've seen your salvation. He didn't say, I saw part of it, and then I need to add something to it. I have seen the totality of your salvation.
and it is in your son. For he who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you so that you may know. Do you know today? If not, you can as we close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to have come face to face with the consolation of Israel and the consolation of all people. For our hope is in Christ and him alone. And I pray for those who are here that aren't certain of that, that today would be that day that you would reveal to them clearly that Jesus Christ is the only way. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but through me. We are to put our faith and trust in him and him alone for the forgiveness of sin. We're to believe, as you said, that he is your plan of peace for men, that he is all-sufficient, that he died on the cross so that we might be redeemed from the, and, and set free from the bondage of sin and the judgment of God. He rose again, conquering death to give us life eternally. God, I pray that everyone who is here will see Jesus before they die, that they can make peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom we owe all things. Amen. And speaking of an attitude of gratitude on the first...